Turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. The Ten Commandments start with God in verse 2. I am the Lord your God. And they end deep inside the human heart in verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now the Tenth Commandment differs from the preceding ones. They deal with actions. This commandment deals with attitudes. They deal with deeds. This commandment deals with desires. The Tenth Commandment deals with a sin that others cannot see. When you break the Tenth Commandment, you don't end up with blood on your hands. They can't test you for DNA. You don't end up with contraband in your possession. You don't end up with lies to cover up. You can wear a congenial expression, a conventional haircut, a conservative outfit. You can carry on a friendly conversation and all the while below the surface you can be coveting your neighbor's wife or car or ski boat or lawnmower. It is an easily camouflaged interior sin. Now the word covet carries a negative connotation in our language. Actually, the Hebrew word used here is a word that simply means to desire. And that's why this commandment doesn't end after four words. He doesn't simply say, you shall not covet. Because there are certain desires that God has placed within us. It's okay to desire a wife as long as you don't already have one. It's okay to desire a house. It's okay to desire a donkey or an ox. The prohibition is you shall not covet what belongs to your neighbor. Now I want to point out four things about this coveting this morning. I want to see its nature, its form, its symptoms, and then its cure. First of all, the nature of coveting. What can we say about the nature of coveting? Well, one thing we can say is that it's deceptive. This commandment is placed last for a reason. It's the catch-all commandment. If you have managed to rationalize your way through the first nine commandments, this is the one that is set up to get you. It's the commandment that nailed the Apostle Paul. Paul was a young Pharisee. He was taking a little inventory on his life, and so he got out the commandments, and he began to check them off. And he said, I worship God alone. I'm not an idolater. I don't take the name of the Lord in vain. I keep the Sabbath day. He was doing fine until he got to the Tenth Commandment. And he says in Romans chapter 7 that this commandment, you shall not covet, slew him. See, he might have been able to say, I've never done those things. But he couldn't say, I've never wanted to. The Tenth Commandment is designed to slay the self-righteous person who won't own up to the first nine. Because it moves past the question of what we have done to the question of what we have wanted to do. This is the catch-all commandment. But you know what's interesting? It doesn't catch everybody. Because covetousness is deceptive. It's internal 
It's private. It's easy to hide. And we don't like to admit it. George Barna did a poll of evangelical Christians, asked them to look at the Ten Commandments and say whether they keep them or they don't. 76% said they don't tolerate other gods. 77% honor their parents. 93% have met, never committed murder. 82% have never committed adultery. 86% are guiltless when it comes to stealing. In fact, nearly half, 48%, said they never even lie. How do you think they did when they got to the last commandment? You say, certainly they owned up to this one. More than half, 53%, said they never covet. Covetousness is deceptive. We don't like to admit that it's there. And that's not something new. Francis Xavier, a Catholic missionary in the 16th century, said, I have listened to multiplied thousands of confessions, but I have yet to have one person confess the sin of covetousness. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, I've seen thousands of murderers and adulterers and thieves converted, but I've never seen a coveter converted. Now, he was saying that tongue-in-cheek. Have you ever been to a testimony meeting where somebody stands up and says, the problem I had before I was saved was that I was a coveter. You just don't hear that. Because we don't want to own up to it. It's a deceptive thing. It's a sin that we think others have, but we don't have. Oh, we admire, and we appreciate, and we may even ogle a little bit, but we don't covet. Second thing we can say about the nature of coveting is it's deep-rooted. Jesus said in Mark 7, 21, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed deeds of coveting. Coveting is not just a bad habit that we picked up along the way. It is something that we have inherently. It comes from the heart. And we were born with it. I can take your little child and put him in the room with another little child and 16 toys. And which, which toy is he going to want? the one that the other child is holding. And you don't have to coach him to do that because it comes from the heart. It is deep-rooted. Thirdly, it is degenerative. That is, it gets worse. Coveting starts out wanting what someone else has, and then when I can't get what they have, I will step down a level and I will wish they didn't have it. Or I will rejoice if they lose it. That's the nature of coveting. Maybe you heard about the man who found the magic lantern and he rubbed it and the genie came out and said he could have three wishes. The only condition was that whatever he wished for, his neighbor would get twice as much. So he said, I want a huge house. He got it. And his neighbor got a castle. He said, I want two million dollars. He got it. And his neighbor got four million. Jeannie said, you got one more wish. He said, all right, I want to lose one eye. Hello? Okay. Just want to make sure you're still there. It's degenerative. It's vicious. And then fourthly, it's destructive. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 9 says, people who want to get rich 
fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now notice, he didn't say those who are rich will plunge into ruin. He said those who want to get rich. The problem is not money, the problem is the love of money. And that's covetousness. It will plunge you into ruin and destruction. How? Because it is the root of all kinds of evil. Loving money is the mother of all sins. You see, when you break the Tenth Commandment, you have broken them all. I mean, think about it. Why do people break the first two commandments about other gods and idols? Covetousness. They turn that desire that ought to be toward God to other things. In fact, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5 says, covetousness is idolatry. It is worshiping something other than God. Why do people break the Sabbath day? Covetousness. I've got to work more to make more. Why do people steal? Covetousness. I need to take what my neighbor has. Why do people commit adultery? They are coveting their neighbor's wife. Coveting is the root of all kinds of evil. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, you cannot serve God and money. You have to make a choice between the two because you cannot be committed to, you cannot follow after both. Covetousness is destructive because it leads to other sins and it leads to judgment. You say, well, breaking this commandment can't be as bad as the others because this just takes place in the privacy of my own heart. Well, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 5 says, For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. God groups together the covetous person right along with the immoral person, and He says neither is in the kingdom of God second thing I want to point out this morning is the forms of covetousness. What kind of things do we covet? Well, obviously, number one, we covet possessions. We live in a society where materialism is not only accepted, it's encouraged. Madison Avenue has done a job on us. They have given us a case of the I wants. They have led us to believe that we can't be happy unless we have something newer and shinier and bigger and better. Milton Bradley came out with a new board game called Mall Madness. Here's the description. Will you be the first to lose all your money? You are let loose in a shopping mall with $200. Go to it and spend it all. Empty your pockets first and you win the game. When you've spent every cent, your marker moves triumphantly into the winner's space labeled broke, and you win. A recent survey of female teenagers discovered that 93% said their favorite pastime was shopping. And we don't even need a shopping list to go shopping today. We, we go for just any reason at all. We call that window shopping. And the salesperson comes up to us and says, may I help you? And you say, no thank you, I'm just looking. If you were really honest, you would say, no thank you, I'm just coveting. I'm just trying to see what's out there that I don't have that my neighbor has. 
I heard about one guy who said, if my wife doesn't go to West Park Mall three times a week, I send her a get well card. How do you react when you see someone with a nicer car, a nicer house, nicer things? Did you see that furniture? It goes all the way back to Louis the 14th. Ours goes back to Sears on the 15th. Why do we spend so much time looking at people's possessions? Well, because in our materialistic society, that's how we keep score. We have been led to believe that net worth and self-worth are the same thing. That's why in the Great Depression, so many people jumped out of buildings. The logic goes something like this. If I am what I have, and I lose what I have, I'm worthless. Listen, if you want to know what and who you really are, add up all the things that you have that money can't buy and death can't take away, and that is your real net worth. But you see, people don't understand that. And so we covet possessions. And we will pay almost any price we will sacrifice morals. We will sacrifice values. We will sacrifice integrity just to get a little bit more. We will even sacrifice relationships. I heard about one lady who won $17 million in the lottery. She called home to her live-in boyfriend and she said, I just won the lottery. Start packing. He said, great. Warm weather or cold weather? She said, it doesn't matter as long as you're gone when I get home. We covet possessions. But secondly, we covet people. Namely, other people's people. As verse 17 says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. In the parallel passage in Deuteronomy 5.21, it lists that first. Now, we can covet our neighbor's wife sexually, which is really adultery of the heart, or we can covet other people with other motives. You say, I wish I had his wife. She's got a great job and she makes a lot of money. I wish I had his wife. She's so witty and beautiful and talented. I wish I had her husband. He's so kind and helpful. I wish I had those people as my parents. I would have it made. We covet people. Thirdly, we, cover, we covet position. And Jesus saw this firsthand among the scribes and the Pharisees. He said in Matthew 23, 6, they love the place of honor at banquets. They love the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have men call them rabbi. They coveted high positions. When someone had a more important place or a more impressive title, they wanted it. But sadly, Jesus also saw that among His disciples because they argued about who was greatest in the kingdom. We don't have a problem with that, do we? I've been uh, working with a small church in St. Louis trying to help them find a pastor, and they called me this week and said they found one. And in the course of the conversation, they told me that the new pastor would speak only a quarter of the time that I will. 
and they happen to tell me what he's going to make, which is more than me. So I hung up the phone, and I said, let's see, a tenth of the people to look after, a quarter of the work, no building to worry about, and more money. Boy, I wish I was in his shoes. And then I say, I say, well, let's see, where was I? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you shall not covet. Fourth thing we covet is accomplishments. When your friend's daughter wins a full scholarship to college, how do you respond? When the person you work with gets a raise or a promotion, how do you respond? When your teammate gets first team all-conference and you get honorable mention, how do you respond? We can covet people's achievements, their educational level, their good looks, their professional accomplishments, their athletic talents. We can even covet people's spiritual accomplishments. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul is in prison and he tells us that people were competing to fill his spot. And he says some of them are doing it out of envy. They were coveting that position. Paul's in jail, let's go get his position. When John the Baptist's ministry was winding down and Jesus was just rising to His place of prominence, in John chapter 3 and verse 26, John's disciples came to Him and said, everybody's going to Him. Would have been a perfect opportunity for John to covet. Instead, he said, He must increase, but I must decrease. Third thing I want to point out this morning is the symptoms of coveting. If you have any one of these symptoms this morning, you probably have the disease. Symptom number one is fatigue. Are you taking on extra jobs and working longer hours just so you can have more stuff? Just so you can do what everyone else is doing in the material rat race? Proverbs 23, 4 says, Do not wear yourself out to get rich. Have the wisdom to show restraint. Leo Tolstoy wrote a short story entitled, How Much Land Does a Man Need? And it tells about a nomadic people who lived in a far-off land and their soil was black and fertile and perfect for crops, but they didn't plant any. Instead, they let it be known that their land was available and it was cheap. And when anyone showed up expressing interest in the land, he would come to the chief and he would say, what's the price? And the chief would say, our price is always the same, 1,000 rubles a day. You pay 1,000 rubles and you can walk around the land and as much land as you walk around you can have. The only condition is you have to be back where you started by the time the sun sets. Well, the short story is about a fellow by the name of Pehom. He put his thousand rubles in a cap at the feet of the chief at dawn and he set out to step off his acreage. And with every step, the land seemed to get more impressive. And every time he said to himself, you know, I really need to turn back, he would find a more interesting field. And he kept going and going and going. And finally, when the afternoon sun was moving across the sky, he finally forced himself to turn back and he began to run back to the place where he started. And when he got to the foot of the huge hill where he had started, the sun was already setting. 
And so he started to give up, and then the people on top of the hill were cheering him on, and he realized that from the top of the hill, they could still see the sun on the horizon. And so, exhausted, he pushed himself to race up that huge hill, and his heart was pounding and pounding and pounding, and he kept pushing himself and pushing himself, and when he got to the top, his legs gave out, and he dropped dead. And they took out a spade, and they dug a hole, and they put pay home in it. How much land does a man need? Six feet from his head to his heels. How much land do you need? If you're fatigued, it's a sign that you are wanting more than you're needing. Second symptom is debt. Ecclesiastes 5.11 says, As goods increase, so do those who consume them. Every time our supply increases, guess what? Our demand increases. I like the way the Living Bible puts this verse. It says, the more money you have, the more money you spend. Have you noticed that? It doesn't seem to matter what your salary gets up to. It's just not quite enough. But you know what? That never stops covetousness. Because covetousness says you can buy it today and pay for it tomorrow. Covetousness destroys budgets. We call it need really greed. The average American puts $1,300 on credit for every thousand he makes. That's deficit spending. Nobody gets away with that except the government. If you're in debt because you wanted more things than you needed, that's a symptom of covetousness. It always costs more to have more. If the grass is greener on the other side of the fence, you can bet that the water bills are higher too. Third symptom is worry. Ecclesiastes 5.12 says, The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. The more you have, the more you have to worry about. How am I going to protect it? How am I going to save it? How am I going to invest it? How am I going to insure it? How am I going to pay the taxes on it? How am I going to keep it? Insomnia increases with income. Fourth symptom is conflict. James chapter 4 and verse 1 says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it, so you kill. You cannot have what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You know what the number one cause of divorce is in this country? It's financial tension. It's arguments over money and possessions. When you have what I want, there's going to be a conflict. And if you're having conflicts about money and things, it's a symptom of covetousness. Let me give you a fifth and final symptom. That's dissatisfaction. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. You can never get all the things you want from things. 
When you open a gift at Christmas time, you say, wow, this is great. It doesn't take very long till it's in the garage sale pile. How many people are still excited about the gift you got at Christmas? You are? Good. How many of you even remember what you got for Christmas? You, you husbands better raise your hands. If you love things, you will never be satisfied. It's as simple as that. If you love things, you will never be satisfied. Elvis Presley had three jets, two Cadillacs, a Rolls Royce, a Lincoln Continental, two station wagons, a Jeep, a custom tour bus, and three motorcycles. His favorite car was his 1960 Cadillac limousine. The top was covered with pearl white naga hide. The body was sprayed with 40 coats of a specially prepared paint that included crushed diamonds. Nearly all the metal trim was plated with 18 karat gold. It had two gold flake telephones. It had a gold vanity containing a gold electric razor, gold hair clippers, an electric shoe buffer, a gold-plated television, record player, amplifier, and refrigerator. Did it satisfy him? No. He died a lonely and unhappy man. When Diet Coke was only available in the United States, Christina Onassis would dispatch a jet every month to U.S. at the cost of $30,000 to pick up fresh cases of the real thing. She paid her friends twenty dollars to $30,000 a month to be her pals. She had so much money she had to create wants. And yet Christina Onassis died an unfulfilled and profoundly unhappy woman. You say, well, everybody knows that. I mean, money can't buy you happiness. Well, yes, that's a cliche that we all know. But somehow, we believe that if we got a lot of money, we would be the exception. And so down in our heart of hearts, we're coveting. Let me tell you something. Covetousness is never logical. We're like the two men who were watching a wealthy friend being buried the way he had wanted. He was sitting behind the steering wheel of his luxury convertible. And as the crane lowered the car into the grave with the corpse propped behind the steering wheel, one of them said to the other, now that's really living. Have you got any of the symptoms of covetousness? Fatigue, debt, worry, conflict, dissatisfaction? Then listen carefully to the fourth thing we want to talk about this morning. And that is the cure for coveting. What's the antidote to covetousness? Well, it's contentment. Someone has said there are two ways to have enough in life one is to get more, the other is to want less. Now, how do you want less? How do you experience contentment with whatever you have? Well, Paul said in Philippians 4.11, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Did you catch that? Contentment is something that Paul learned. It doesn't come naturally. 
I am not by nature a contented person and neither are you. It has to be learned. Now how do we learn it? Well, let me suggest that there are three parts to the education process. Number one, we need the right purpose. When you are coveting, you are seeking the wrong things and living for the wrong reasons. A rich widow in Beverly Hills who was worth millions died and people gathered around her casket and somebody said it's so sad she had so much to live for. And the next person said no, she had so much to live on. She had nothing to live for. What are we to be living for? What is to be our purpose? Well, Jesus said it in John, or Matthew 6.33. He said, but seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things shall be added you. Your purpose is not to seek your own kingdom. Your purpose is not to seek the kingdom of somebody else. Your purpose is to seek God's kingdom. And when you are doing that, you will be content because He has promised that He will give you the things you need. Second part to the education process is to have the right perspective. Listen to this verse out of Hebrews 13.5. Let your way of life be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For He Himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. To learn to be content, you have to have the right perspective. And what's the right perspective? No matter what I have or don't have, I have the Lord. And when is He going to leave me? When is He going to forsake me? Never. You see, other things will become insignificant when you keep your eyes on the Lord. You can say with David in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You can say with the psalm writer in Psalm 73, 25, whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see, when you have that perspective, I don't want anything on earth, and the only thing I want in heaven is you, Lord. When you have that perspective, you will be content. You will not be window shopping at the Joneses. And the third part to this education process of learning contentment is the right practice. There are some things you can do to counteract covetousness. One is love. Love is really the antithesis of covetousness because covetousness wants what's best for me at your expense. Love wants what's best for you at my expense. And that's why Paul said in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 14 that the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In order to stop loving things, which is covetousness, I need to start loving people. And then secondly, I need to give. Covetousness is wanting what my neighbor has. Giving is providing what my neighbor needs. And I don't know any way to quicker counteract covetousness than by giving. Because it frees my heart from its attachment to things and it turns my heart toward heaven. Jesus said in Matthew 6.21, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And then thirdly and finally, 
eat right. Eat right. Jesus said in, Matt, in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Why do we covet? We covet because we're hungry and we're thirsty. And we think that those things will satisfy us. Make sure that you're filling yourself with Jesus. And you won't be looking around for anything else to snack on. If you are filling yourself with Jesus, you won't be going around trying to find some junk food because He will completely satisfy you. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word today. We thank You for the challenge about covetousness. And Father, as we each individually examine our heart this morning, we pray that You might lay it bare and that we might afresh give it completely to You so that we might go from this place not loving things, but loving people. And not wanting what our neighbor has, but wanting our neighbor to have what we have, which is a relationship with You and all the spiritual blessings that that encompasses. Thank You for the privilege of being Your children. We praise You for it in Jesus' name.